Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. So we're turning now to the book of Proverbs, and I invite you to turn with me this morning to Proverbs chapter 7. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a second, I'm sure we were on Proverbs 5 last week. What happened to Proverbs chapter 6? And don't worry, we're not abandoning chapter 6, but chapter 6 is a bit more uh, varied in its topics that it addresses, and so we'll pick up a portion of it when we talk about the sluggard and a portion of it when we talk about lying, and we'll pick up a portion of it later today and the consequences of adultery as well. But chapter 7 logically follows chapter 5, and so that's where we're digging in this morning. Now, just as a brief reminder to you, we are in the middle of Solomon's nine-chapter opening appeal to pursue wisdom. The first four chapters describe the life of wisdom, founded on the, the, the foundation of the fear of the Lord and then addressing those three pillars of a life of wisdom, a, a heart to listen to the Lord and, and to trust the Lord and then to guard your heart against sin. But now in chapters 5 through 9, Solomon is describing wisdom and folly as two women that his son could marry. And he's challenging and calling his son to love wisdom and listen to her invitation and to reject folly and her temptation. So that's the context for Proverbs chapter 7. Now let's read this chapter together. This is the Word of God. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend, to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words." For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, Let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come home. With much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk she compels him. All at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, 
or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. God, how I pray that you would use your word this morning. Draw our hearts to you. Warn our hearts against sin and evil that we might honor you and follow you in your ways. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I realize this is certainly an oversimplification, but if you are a teacher and you want to teach effectively, you should take at least two perspectives on any given subject. On the one hand, there are themes and principles which summarize the key points of any given subject matter. And then on the other hand, there are the real-life stories that show those principles and practice. A good history teacher, for instance, will teach you the causes of World War II and tell you which countries were involved and why they were involved and then which things led to the Allied victory. But then that good history teacher is also going to tell you specific stories of soldiers, of battles, the things that happened in their lives to flesh out those principles. My chemistry teacher was so good because he both explained how certain molecules interacted with other molecules and why that happened, and then he showed us by exploding hydrogen balloons in the classroom. Blowing things up is a highly effective teaching tactic for boys. Well, in a similar way, Solomon pairs chapter 5 and chapter 7 to give his son a complete lesson on the dangers of temptation and adultery. In chapter 5, he explained the principles. And if you were here last week, Dr. Kiefer summarized them. Don't get hustled by the forbidden woman, but be satisfied with your spouse. For blessings come from the one, but iniquity and death with the former. But now in chapter 7, Solomon tells a story to show his son how temptation unfolds. Now, Solomon's story is again focused on sexual temptation and the forbidden woman, but I want us to note that the story he tells really addresses how temptation in general plays out. All sorts of temptations. And so, for all of us this morning, whether we're married or single, young or old, male or female, the story that Solomon tells is going to lay out for us how temptation works and warn us against us. Because the chapter seeks to protect us from folly and death by calling us to love wisdom and know temptation's game plan. That's the main point of this chapter. To protect us from folly and death by calling us to love wisdom and to know temptation's game plan. Well, let's look at verses 1 through 5 first, where Solomon calls us to love wisdom. If these opening verses sound familiar to you, there is a reason for that. In every one of the six chapters of Proverbs that we've looked at so far, Solomon has opened with the same basic appeal. My son, keep my commandments and live. 
He has said this over and over and over. Now, remember what we said back in chapter 2, that this isn't Solomon just telling his son, do what dad tells you to. Solomon is passing on to his son the Lord's commandments, the Lord's wisdom, the Lord's instruction, and holding that before his son. And so in many ways, Solomon is just repeating and passing along to Israel the same message that the Lord gave to Israel again and again in the book of Deuteronomy. We are constantly going to see parallels between Deuteronomy and Proverbs. If you were to flip back to Deuteronomy, you would find in chapter 4 and 6 and 8 and 10 and 11 and 30 and 31 and probably more that I didn't think of off the top of my head again and again and again the same appeal to Israel. Keep my commandments and live long in the land. Keep my commandments. They are your wisdom and your life. Keep my commandments and live before me. And here in Proverbs, it's the same message that Solomon is giving to his son and the people of Israel. Keep my commandments and live. And the question for us as we hear this for the sixth time in Proverbs is this. Will this repetition cause us to tune out and say, yeah, 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 I've heard it. That's the sixth time you said it. That's fine. Or will this repetition raise our awareness of the importance of this appeal from the Lord to keep his commandments, for they are the path of life? Well, having issued this appeal, Solomon in verses 2 through 4 tells us to do four things in order to treasure and obey these commandments of the Lord. First, he says, we're to keep these teachings as the apple of your eye. That is literally value or protect these as the pupil of your eye. Now, you know, you know what happens, right, when something flies towards your eye. Maybe it's a little bug that flies towards your eye. Maybe it's a, a ball. But our whole body acts with instinct to protect us from that thing that's coming towards us. We react right away. And because of that, this statement of the apple or the pupil of your eye is used often in Hebrew poetry as a statement of value, of importance to guard and protect it. And the message here is we should have that same instinctual value in action to guard and protect and to keep the teachings of the Lord. Then Solomon says, secondly, we're to bind them on our fingers. Now, maybe some of you can remember back in the dark ages before iPhones and the Reminder app, what you would do if you had something you couldn't forget and you had to remember. You know, what did we do when you had to remember something and we didn't have the Reminder app to tell us? Well, we would write notes all over the place. And some of you, like me, might have written notes on your hand. I remember when I was a teacher and I'd be walking between classes and I would suddenly remember something I, ha- I couldn't forget. I had to do this. And I would take a pen and I'd write it on my hand. And by the end of the day, I might have two or three notes written in pen on my hands. As soon as I looked down, oh, there it is. Well, that's the point Solomon's making here, that they were to wrap their fingers with these commandments, have them so that they were right there. There was no way they could possibly forget them. Bind them right there in front of you on your fingers. Well, then third, Solomon says we should take it a step further and write these commandments on the tablet of our hearts. In other words, we can't just have a physical reminder of these commandments on our fingers. We have to have them on our hearts. We have to want to carry them out. Now, when you read this verse, 
your mind should immediately realize what an immense gift we have in the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Because Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 31, 33, that the crucial difference that Christ will make when He comes to make a new covenant with us in His blood is that He will send the Spirit of God to write God's commandments on our hearts so that we will know God and we will desire to carry them out. And that desire, that knowledge of God and desire to keep His commandments is the focus of verse 3. And then finally, in verse 4, we are to call wisdom our sister, our intimate friend. Now, there is a little bit of, of debate on this, but I think most agree that Solomon is using the language of love here. If you were to look over to Song of Solomon, you know the Song of Solomon is a, a poem of love, and the lover there multiple times calls his bride his sister. Not because he's marrying his sister, that's not it at all. It's because this word refers to an intimate female friend. And it can be the language of, of love. And I think that's what Solomon is getting at here. What is the best way to ignore the appeals of the adulteress? To be in love with your wife. And in a similar way, the love and intimate desire for the Lord's commandments to marry wisdom, if you will, the passion for the Lord's commandments is that which expels the power of temptation and the desire to sin. And so this is Solomon's first argument to protect us against temptation. Love wisdom. Keep God's commandments and live. Keep them as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart so it is your very desire. And marry them as your intimate friend. And we will find protection against temptation. But then Solomon takes most of his time to turn secondly to warn his son against sexual temptation. And this time he does it by telling a story to show how temptation unfolds. It exposes temptation's game plan, if you will. And you know, this is the first weekend of college football. I'm a, I'm a college football fan. And if as the defense, you know what play the offense is going to run, you have a pretty good chance of stopping it. And that's what Solomon's trying to do here. He's trying to expose temptation's game plan so that we can be guarded and protected against it. Now, notice how temptation works. Verses 6 through 9, Solomon looks out the window of his house and sees a simple young man. Now, we've met this character, the simple young man, several times in Proverbs so far. Remember, he is not the one who is totally sold out to sin and wickedness, but he's also not committed to wisdom, and so he lacks protection. He lacks insight. And this simple young man is not even aware of temptation. He hasn't thought about temptation. He hasn't considered it. It's not even on his radar. And so he goes out and unwittingly puts him exactly in the place where temptation is strongest. It says that he passes along the street of this forbidden woman. The Hebrew actually implies a sort of confident carefreeness in the, in the gate. He's, he's just walking along, not with a care in the world, not even realizing he's taking the road to the forbidden woman's house. We read that he's also taking this walk at twilight as night is setting in and darkness is growing when the wise are back home safe 
and at rest. As Charles Bridges puts it, the loitering evening walk, the unseasonable hour, the vacant mind, all bring the youth into contact with evil. Was this not courting sin? And here's the first factor in temptation. We may not purposely pursue it, but if we're not consciously aware and on guard, we may put ourselves in positions where temptation is the strongest and most dangerous. Maybe it's sensing a spark with a coworker, but we're still sure we can chat over lunch and everything will be fine. Maybe it's knowing that pornography is a challenge, but we still pull out our phone for some downtime when we're all alone. Maybe it's realizing that the friends that we hang out with are not really good influences. They're not really believers, but we assume that's fine. We don't think that that will lead us anywhere. And not thinking about temptation and taking it into account is the first warning from this story because we can find ourselves where temptation is strongest if we are not on guard. But then in verses 10 through 21, we find out that It's not just a matter of us unwittingly going where temptation is strongest. Temptation will also pursue us. Sometimes we're not doing anything to pursue it, and it comes after us. Notice that this woman comes out to meet him. She's looking for someone she can persuade to join her in sin, and she grabs hold of him. And so it is with temptation sometimes. It comes after us whether we want it or not. And so we need to be ready and on guard. Now, will you watch some of the tactics of temptation? Follow, follow through these verses and watch how temptation works. First, this woman stirs desire and offers pleasure. You see it there in verse 10 and following. She wears immodest clothing. She kisses him. She says that she has offered her sacrifices, and the word there refers specifically to peace offerings, that day. Now, this could mean a couple of things. It could mean that this woman is saying, look, I've made my sacrifices to the Lord. I'm fine. Everything's sort of covered now. It could be that kind of statement. Or if you go to Leviticus chapter 7, you'd find out that in a peace offering, the offerer was to give the fat to the Lord, and then the rest of the meat they were to take home, and they were required to eat it that day. And so this woman might be saying, look, I offered a peace offering today and I've got a steak dinner waiting at home that has to be eaten. Why don't you come and join me? And she grows bolder after that, though. She describes her bed and her perfume, inviting the young man to spend a night of love with her. But this is how temptation works. It sparks curiosity. It raises the subject, encourages interests offers reasons why we should do it and attractions for it. But it doesn't just offer those attractions. Notice the lies involved. Do you see verses 11 and 12? Verses 11 and 12 describe how this woman is all over the place on the lookout for someone she can find. Now she's in the street. Now she's in the market. Now she's at this corner. Now she's at that corner. But then look down to verse 15. Do you see what this woman tells the young man? I came out to meet you. I was looking for you, and I found you. No, she wasn't. She was at this corner, then that corner, then in the market, then this. So flattering, right? Here's this guy thinking, man, she just can't resist me. 
That's a terrible, uh, terrible assumption anytime uh, for us. But it's a total lie. She was out there looking for anyone, but she lies in order to make herself more attractive. And temptation will always twist the truth in its appeal. Then in verses 19 and 20, temptation pulls out another classic trick. It turns the focus away from right and wrong to the question of, will I get caught? And you see what this woman says? My husband's gone on a long journey. He's taken the money bag with him. In other words, he didn't just go to the store. He stocked up for a long trip. And he won't come home again until the full moon. In other words, come on, it will be great and no one will know. That's how temptation works. Pornography doesn't hurt anyone. A lie. And no one will know. Wrong question. A little lie here doesn't really matter. False. And then everything will be covered over and fine. Also probably false and the wrong question. But this is how temptation works in any time. Think about this. Any time you find yourself asking the question, will I get caught or not? Temptation has already won half the battle. Because it switched the question between what is right and wrong to will there be consequences or not. And temptation has a hook in us. Well, notice what happens here. The young man has put himself where temptation is most dangerous. His desire is stirred. He's persuaded that no one will find out. And then verse 22 says, all at once he followed her. And that's how temptation works, isn't it? We know we shouldn't but we don't flee. We consider it. We're pretty sure it's a bad idea, but then all of a sudden we think, whatever, I'm in. It seems too attractive. He follows her to her house. Now, I'm not sure how many of you fish. I don't fish a lot, but I'm pretty sure that I've seen fish who play out this story. You know how the bobber's sitting there and the worm's on the hook hanging in in the water, and up comes maybe a a bluegill, and it's not swimming towards the worm, it's just sort of floating. It just gets closer and closer, and I'm sort of imagining the conversation that's playing out in its little brain, like, wow, look at that juicy worm just floating there in the water. Wait a second, worms don't just float in the water, it's probably a bad idea. But I don't see any hook, and it looks really good. And then what happens? All at once, From just sitting there, the fish darts in, tries to take a bite, and swim away as fast as it can. But it's too late, because the hook was there, and it grabs it. And unfortunately, when it comes to sin and temptation, we often aren't any smarter than a fish. We've sat there, we've seen the attraction, we let it play in front of us, and we dash in, think we can enjoy it, and get out, and the hook is in us. And you remember the story of Esau, Jacob and Esau, how Esau came in from hunting and he was like an eighth grade boy after a soccer game. He was so hungry he was going to die. And so he traded his entire birthright, his inheritance as the firstborn for a bowl of soup. And do you remember what Hebrews 12, 16 says about Esau and says to us? It says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And that's how sin and temptation are. 
They are seeking to persuade us to trade wisdom and life and reward and blessing for a single meal, for a few minutes of pleasure, for a moment of getting our parents off our back. But just like Esau, as Hebrews warns, the consequences of such folly come. And Proverbs tells us that there's two kinds of consequences that come when we give in to temptation and we sin. There are spiritual consequences and there are practical consequences. Spiritually, sin leads us to death. Notice verses 23 to 27. He says that the man who gives in to the forbidden woman is like an ox going to the slaughterhouse or a stag hit with the deathly arrow. You know, the ox... He's just plodding along, thinking he's going back to the barn, assuming nothing bad will happen. The deer, he's just running through the woods, not even realizing that going that way will cost him his life. And so it is with this young man who doesn't realize that giving himself into temptation to the forbidden woman leads to death. There's spiritual consequences. There's also practical consequences. And here we're, here's where we could flip back to chapter 6 for a minute. Uh, maybe it's on the same page in your Bible. It is for me. Maybe you have to flip back a page. But look up to chapter 6, verses 27 to 35. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 27 to 35. Here, Solomon's giving a third warning in three chapters against adultery and sexual temptation. But here he focuses on the practical consequences of sin. Verse 27 starts, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. And then in the next six verses, he describes the practical consequences that will come. Go committing adultery leads to dishonor and it leads to disgrace. It will make a jealous husband who will seek vengeance and he will accept no gift or compensation to let you off the hook for what you've done. I know that there are those among us who have experienced adultery before and if so, you know the broken trust and the wounds and the jealousy and the disgrace that come with that. And while in the grace of God there is hope through repentance and forgiveness from the Lord and Lord willing reconciliation from your spouse, it doesn't take away from the practical consequences that do come. And so it is with every single temptation. There are spiritual consequences as sin pulls us from the Lord and puts us on the path to death. And there are practical consequences for every sinful decision that we make. We'll step back for a minute and consider what Solomon's given us here. If you know the enemy's game plan ahead of time, you are in the best position to defeat it. And Solomon here has showed us temptation's battle plans. Temptation is most dangerous when we aren't thinking about it and we put ourselves in its path. Temptation will seek us out and pursue it, so we better be on our guard. Temptation will play to our desires and our felt needs in the moment. Temptation will lie to us to seem more attractive. Temptation will tell us it's all about consequences and we can be safe from them. And in a moment, we'll be susceptible 
if we don't love wisdom and know God's commandments and keep them and bind them on our fingers and write them on our hearts, if the Lord and his word are not the apple of our eye and our intimate friend. And that's the lesson of Proverbs chapter 7. Now, before we close, I want to reflect on this chapter in three ways. I want to answer an objection. I want to reflect on the source. And I want to consider a remedy. First, let's answer an objection. I've talked to those before, and my guess is that many of you who have have talked to someone before who is pursuing worldly gain and sexual pleasure and have said, well, I don't know. My life seems to be going just fine. I'm getting all sorts of blessing and benefit. The Bible's off its rocker to make this all seem so shameful and guilty and deathly. Proverbs doesn't match my experience. Things are going great for me. Or talk to someone who's pursuing sin and has given you that answer. So let's clarify a few things. The Bible is still absolutely true. First of all, Scripture acknowledges the attraction of worldly gain and the power of sexual pleasure. Sin twists them, but they were originally good things created by God to give delight. And so, of course, they are going to be attractive. But the consequences will come. What we don't know is when exactly and how exactly they will come. If we believe that God's word is true, then going against it in sin will bring guilt and shame that will face us in short order. But if we don't trust God's word, we might not have any guilt or shame at all until we stand before the face of God at the judgment throne and we know the guilt of what we've done. Sexual sin may affect our relationships and lead to practical consequences right away. Or we may go years thinking that we have escaped consequences altogether. And it is only much later when we realize the impact of choosing our way and to ignore God's commandments. I think Proverbs' warning and the guarantee of consequences are something like road-closed signs. You know how you can be driving along and you come to a road-closed sign? But you look past that sign and you think, the road looks pretty good to me. I don't see any construction zone. And if you're like me, you start thinking, well, maybe they closed this road, but nothing's actually happening until tomorrow. And so you think, well, I could just just slip around this sign and maybe for a good mile, maybe several miles, it looks like you were right and the warnings were wrong. And then you hit it. The bridge is out the construction zone. And of course, when that happens, I'm just so mad that I've got to waste my time and turn around. But the practical consequences came. Or maybe it's worse consequences. Maybe you're like a driver in uh, Tracy, California a few months ago. I don't know if any of you saw the uh, news story of that. A 12-foot sinkhole opened across the entire road. So authorities put road closed signs, flashing lights, barriers, cones. And that didn't keep not one not two, but three cars from going around. And they put these quite a ways in advance of this road. But these cars drove a long ways. Everything looked normal. And so apparently they threw caution to the wind because three cars went straight into the 12-foot sinkhole. No brake marks, no skid marks, no sign that they were slowing down. They were on their way. 
and met disaster. The CBS local reporter was great. He said, if only someone would have put up barriers and signs and flashing lights to warn these cars. Oh, wait, they did. And yet they crashed to their ruin. But that's the way sin is. The consequences may not come right away. But God has given us his word, his proverbs. He reveals his created design. He gives us his commandments. He shows us wisdom for life and flourishing. And he tells us that the spiritual and practical consequences will come if we blast through the warning signs. And so we dare not think we've outsmarted them. We have no excuse when disaster strikes. If that's an objection that we need to answer, what about the source of this chapter? After all, Solomon's the one who penned these words, and we might think, how are we supposed to take this warning seriously from a guy with 700 wives and 300 concubines? And Dr. Kiefer gave us an outline of the answer last week, and I think we can expand on it just slightly. In the first place, of course, we remember that Solomon is still giving us wisdom from the Lord that is true. A flawed messenger does not negate the truth of the message when it is brought from the Lord. But I think we can go further than that as well. I was reading back through 1 Kings and reviewing the life of Solomon. And every indication in 1 Kings is that Solomon wrote, lived, and led out of the Lord's wisdom for a number of years at the beginning of his reign. While he played with fire by marrying an Egyptian woman, the daughter of Pharaoh, prior to his prayer for wisdom, the reality is that for the first nine chapters of 1 Kings, which they say cover the first 13 years of Solomon's reign, these chapters tell us about only one woman in Solomon's life. Four times in those nine chapters, it talks about the daughter of Pharaoh, Solomon's wife. He builds her and her alone a house and lives with her. And it's not until 1 Kings chapter 11 do we read this, that late in his life, Solomon was turned away from the Lord by the many women that he loved. Now, 1 Kings doesn't give us an exact timeline. But it seems that initially the wisdom of God was in him and that God's wisdom led to flourishing and blessing, but that as success abounded, Solomon turned from wisdom later in his life. That, of course, leads to the second thing we can say, and that is that everything Solomon wrote in Proverbs came true. His sexual immorality led to both practical and spiritual consequences. Adversaries, trouble, the tearing away a part of the kingdom. And so in the end, we can say that the Lord used Solomon's wisdom to give us a book of wisdom, and then he used Solomon's sinful folly to demonstrate the truth of the wisdom he gave us through the Spirit of God. So far from undermining Proverbs, Solomon's example only doubly reinforces its truth. That's the answer to an objection. It's considering the source. But finally, is there a remedy, a remedy for the attraction of sin that would help us as we face temptation? Now, the reality is that you and I are regularly lulled into underestimating how strongly our flesh can be pulled towards sin. 
If our indwelling sin is so strong and temptation's battle plan is so clear, what hope do you and I have? Well, our hope is that understanding our desperate situation will drive us to see how much we need Christ. That it will drive us right back into the arms of our Savior. In fact, that Puritan theologian John Owen wrote about this. He talked about the primary reason that those who profess to believe in Christ fall into sin. And so for all of us here who have professed to trust Christ, listen to what Owen says about the primary reason we fall into sin. He said the primary reason is that we forget how much we need Christ on a daily basis. He wrote this. He said, they who are well and in health will not always value the physician. And so when things seem to be going along well, we start to undervalue how much we need our Savior. He says, an ignorance of the necessity of Jesus Christ and the benefits of His mediation and salvation first betrays us into an indifference about Christ. And once it lulls us into an indifference about how much we need Christ, it then leads us to defect from Christ. Owen wrote, that faith alone will never forsake Christ, which springs out of and is built on a conviction of our desperate and daily need of Him. And so that is the crux of the matter. Do we every single day and every single hour feel our desperate need for Christ as our Savior and our Lord? Christ the one who by virtue of his resurrection sends his Holy Spirit to regenerate our hearts and write the commandments of the Lord on our hearts. Christ, the one who declares God's will to us, who intercedes on our behalf, who leads us in victory and obedience. Christ, the one to whom we are united by faith, he washes us of our sin and is remaking us more and more into the image of God. Christ, is our greatest need and our greatest help. And so my prayer for each one of us this morning as we read this story from Proverbs 7 is that we might love the wisdom of God as our intimate friend and keep the commandments of God as our life. That we might recognize temptation's tactics and cling to and follow Christ as our greatest need and so find protection from temptation and sin that comes our way. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, keep us from underestimating the lure of sin, the power of our indwelling sin, the ease with which if our eyes are off of you for one minute, they are on the world. O oh Lord, Increase our love of wisdom in your commandments. Increase our desperate need and recognition of how much we rely on Jesus Christ. Help us to recognize the tactics of temptation, to be aware of it and to flee it. And Father, we pray that the result would be a growing righteousness and holiness, a growing hatred of sin to the glory of your name. Pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.
The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.